Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the Kirk Church Podcast. I'm Aaron Elmore, lead pastor at Kirk of the Hills, located in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is where you can hear messages from all our pastors and guest speakers. Make sure to subscribe and share with anyone who follows the Kirk. If you want to know more about us, visit us at thekirk.com, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram at the Kirk Church. Let's get started with today's episode. So you have probably heard of Christmas in July. Maybe some of you like to celebrate that. But have you heard of Christmas in the book of Revelation? That's right. This morning we get to experience an apocalyptic Christmas party, right? Now, some of you just got your decorations down from Christmas a little bit ago. Hey, no judgment. But I feel like we need to set the scene a little bit here. Because we're talking about Christmas. There's no shepherds. No angels, no cattle are lowing, but the identity of the baby here is unmistakable. We're reminded that the Christmas story doesn't begin in Bethlehem, it actually began in Eden. You see, Revelation 12 tells us the story of human history, but from a different camera angle, and here with a dedicated camera on a key player that is Satan or the devil. Revelation 12 retells very quickly the human story of history as a drama involving three characters, a woman, a child, and a dragon. The woman here is Mary. Now, as the story unfolds, she kind of moves beyond her historical role into a representative role as sort of the mother of all God's faithful people. I'll unpack that in just a minute. The child is clearly Jesus. In fact, what's quoted about him there is a messianic psalm, Psalm 2, that he will rule with the iron scepter. And the dragon is identified as our great enemy, Satan. And that little cartoonish figure, that's how we often characterize the devil in our world today. But the thing is, the devil isn't messing around. Let's talk about the devil for just a moment. The devil is fierce. The devil is real. The devil, Satan in Hebrew, it means adversary. Okay, that's the first title that's given in the Bible. The second title in, the, in Greek, diabolos, it means accuser or slanderer. And Satan, we get a little bit about him in the Bible, not as much as maybe we'd want. I don't know, maybe we don't want more information about the devil. But we get a little bit in the Bible, and we know enough to know that Satan was an archangel who rebelled against God at some point and led other angels with him. And what are those angels called? Demons, right? The fallen angels are demons. And Satan has limited, although real, influence in the world, which he uses to try to blind people to the gospel, to tempt, to distract, to discourage, to destroy. And here our enemy is depicted as this ferocious red dragon. Now red in the book of Revelation clearly is the color of blood. He has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. What's that all about? Well, he is strong. He is powerful. He is influential. He's rich. He's wealthy. This dragon, by all accounts, is impressive. It's hard to really depict these things. This was the best image I could find in the first few pages of a Google search on it. Yet we know that all authority and power and influence that this dragon has is under the sovereign rule of God. He is not God's counterpart. He is not equal with God. He only can do what God allows him to do. And his ultimate destiny is destruction. 
We've already sang it this morning. He has already been defeated by the work of Christ. Amen, church? But in my experience, it seems that Christians are either too into the devil, if you will. They're either overly impressed. They're they're looking for a demon, a dragon around every corner. They're blaming everything on the devil. The devil made me do it. They're sort of over-spiritualizing things. Or Christians make the opposite mistake where they just don't recognize these things at all. And they ignore spiritual warfare and the reality of a real enemy Satan. We tend to kind of go to one or extreme or the other. And I want us to find a position, I believe that somewhere in between those options, a biblical understanding of Satan, of our enemy, that he is real, that he has real power and influence, but yet that influence is underneath the authority of God and that ultimately he has already been defeated. So the story begins by setting the human struggle in the context of the great spiritual battle. It begins in Genesis 3 with the serpent who is here depicted as a dragon. And this dragon attacks the woman and her seed. Does that sound familiar? We're told that in Genesis 3 that that will happen. And the dragon tries to kill the child as soon as he is born. We know that that actually happened as well from Matthew's Gospel. Herod the Great ordered that all male boys two years and younger should be killed. That was the work of the devil. That was demonic activity. But we also know that the devil could not destroy the baby. We're reminded that that the birth of Christ, that inspires more than wonder and worship, it inspires evil activity. And yet, through the death and resurrection of the baby, the dragon will be cast down to the earth. There the dragon will foster hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people, and yet they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. Jesus, through John, is trying to convince his listeners that they have a real enemy, and that their real enemy, as much as they may think that it's Rome, as much as we may think that it's a political power or a political organization or a political party, as much as we may think that our real enemy is a person or a group of people, our real enemy is the devil. It's Satan. It's a real spiritual force of evil in the world. This battle is real. John is trying to remind us, Jesus really, but through John is unveiling this spiritual reality and wants to remind us as believers, hey, does your life feel chaotic? Do you feel like that there are forces in this world coming against you? Do you feel this tribulation of kingdoms coming into clash against one another? It's because it's real. There's a real enemy, the devil. Things are not what they seem. We also have to keep in mind the Lamb's followers will remain faithful by proclaiming the Lamb's victory and being a faithful presence in the world, by being faithful to the finish. So this section of the vision really focuses on two topics, spiritual warfare and related idolatry. It begins with a war, the war of all wars, the cosmic battle. And John says there was a war in heaven between the archangel Michael and the dragon, the devil. In John's minds, heaven and earth, they overlap. There's this overlapping reality between those things. And ordinarily in the Bible, something will happen in heaven that results in things happening on the earth. That's the way it tends to go. That's the direction, right? Things are, are, are orchestrated. They're sent. Commands are sent from heaven, and things happen on the earth. But what's interesting here in this battle, in effect, is that something happens on the earth that has consequences in heaven. 
Because Jesus came to the earth and his death and resurrection here on the earth is what won the battle in heaven. Isn't that fascinating? Heaven and earth collide and something happening here on earth impacts what's happening in heaven. And yet the part of the story we find ourselves in is that we are in the midst of this battle between Satan and the people of God. And here's the truth. It's difficult to accept, but it is ultimately encouraging. The battle still rages on, but the victory has already been secured. That's the good news, right? From our perspective here on heaven, here, here on earth, no, we want to get there. Here on earth, from our perspective, we're still in the middle of the battle. We feel that. We experience that. It's not comfortable. We are in the battle. But what does it look like as people in the middle of a battle? If we knew, if we had confidence, we knew the war was already over. The outcome had already been decided. You would fight differently. Knowing the outcome, you would fight faithfully, knowing the war has already been decided. So the good news in this unveiled vision is that the dragon is already defeated. He's defeated. He's been hurled out of heaven. Look, look at this word. I love this word. It's repeated over and over again. The great dragon was hurled down later on in the next verse. He was hurled to the earth. Right, The one who accuses the brothers and sisters has been hurled down. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he knows this reality. We see this reality. There's a lot of hurling going on in the book of Revelation, especially chapter 12. I just couldn't help but think about the modern use of the word hurling and what it means. Right? We used to like ride this roller coaster when we were younger. The hurler. Now, that's, that's not what the word here in this context means. I'm not going to make the mistake of importing that backward. But, but this word, this image of, of being hurled out of heaven, I couldn't help but make the connection with an earlier part of Revelation. In the letter, recall the one that we looked in particular to the church. Jesus says, Your posture toward me makes my stomach upset, like the water of your city. Remember that image? Make me want to hurl couldn't help but think about that. But see, the here, the real one, the one that makes Jesus want to hurl, and the one that Jesus actually did hurl out of heaven through his death, through his victory, is the devil. That's the one who got hurled. He's the one that makes Jesus want to hurl. And he's been hurled right out of heaven. The dragon has been cast out. Those sealed in the Lamb's blood are officially booked in heaven. Again, we're appearing. We're peering into the future. So why are things still so difficult? Well, because the war continues on earth for a time. The battle, if you will. The war's been won, but we're still in the middle of the battle. Why does God allow so much pain and suffering and evil in the world? Well, there's no adequate answer for that, but I think the short answer is God is patient and it's not time yet. It's not time yet. He's coming. He's coming soon. But for those who are weary and tired and worn down in the struggle, the good news is the promise of the end of the story. Satan's been defeated. He's already done. The war is over. So why do we still experience this spiritual warfare? Well, because the dragon is angry. He's angry. 
The dragon knows he can't get the child. The child has left the manger and is seated on the throne. The text told us that. So instead he goes after the woman and then he goes after the woman's people here, meaning the people of God. He's filled with fury. He knows the truth. He he knows who God is. He knows his ultimate destiny and he knows his time is short. And he's mad. He wants to cause as much pain and destruction as possible. And so we're told in Revelation 12, the dragon in his rage goes after God's people in three unique ways. And I think we need to understand our enemy and how he works. We understand this intuitively. If you are, if you're in a warfare situation, or let's make it something maybe more accessible for a lot of us. If you're in a sports competition, you need to know your strategy. You need to know what you're good at, but you also need to know your opponent. That makes the difference between a good team and a great team is not only do you know how you're wired and what you're good at it and strengths and weaknesses, you know your opponent. You know their tendencies. You know how they work. And that makes you more effective. And we need to understand how the devil works. We don't get all the information, but Scripture does tell us partially how Satan works. And I think it's good to be aware of that. So first we're told that Satan is the accuser. He's the accuser. He speaks words of condemnation, a hopelessness, unbelief. And in this way, Satan is quite literally anti-Christ. He is the opposite of Jesus. Because Scripture tells us that Jesus is not the accuser. He's the opposite. He's what? He's the advocate. You see the contrast there? Jesus is the one who stands on your behalf declaring you innocent, not because you actually are, but because his blood covers your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin. You are declared holy and righteous with Jesus, the one who is your advocate. The devil is the opposite. He stands and he tries to accuse you. He's the accuser. He spews lies. He wants you to be condemned. And condemnation is not from God. Conviction is. We'll talk about that, but condemnation is not from God. So when you stand, this is a serious question. When you stand before the great and holy righteous judge of heaven, would you rather have an advocate or an accuser? When you put it in those terms, it's pretty straightforward. I'm picking an advocate. I don't want an accuser. I want an advocate. I want to serve the advocate. I want to place my hope in the advocate and not serve the kingdoms of this false God who tries to present himself in power and strength and get me to worship all these false things and these false idols. And then turns around and turns on me and accuses me of the things that he's trying to get me to do. The accuser. He's also the deceiver. The deceiver. Verse 9 the ancient serpent, the devil, or Satan who leads the world astray. John wrote in his gospel, same author here, he said, you belong to the father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's Satan. He's the distorter of truth, the one who twists. And I think that's why there are so many cults. There there are those beliefs that present themselves as being Christian, and yet they're not. They're they're close to the truth. In fact, some cults even share the Bible, or they they have their own version of the Bible, but it's close to the one that we 
believe is God's word. It's close to the truth. It's, there's a lot of things about it that are great. They sound really good. And that's how Satan works. Sometimes he presents things to us in such a way that they, they almost sound right. And if you don't really know the truth, you can be deceived. He's the deceiver. He's the twister of truth. He distorts things just a little bit, trying to make us ineffective at living out our kingdom values and sharing the gospel and bearing good fruit. He can't take our salvation. He can't. So what does he do? He tries to discourage us. He tries to make us ineffective. He messes with us. He has that influence. Why God allows him? I don't, I don't know. Look, that's beyond me. But that's, that's the reality we're living in, this already but not yet kingdom. And it's partly because God is being patient. Because when the end comes, the end comes. He's being patient. So we have to deal with the deceiver, but he's also the destroyer. The devil was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. Again, John wrote in his gospel, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's his objective. 1 Peter 5, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's the great distractor. He's the great discourager. These great weapons. Again, this is not comprehensive and it's not all here in Revelation, but but these are the flaming arrows, right, that Paul calls them, that the evil one uses in his attack against us to try to steal from us and destroy us to deceive the truth of God. I know that discouragement is one of the great tools that the enemy tries to use against me. And unfortunately, pretty effectively sometimes. You get discouraged with, with your own life and your own progress and sanctification. You get d- discouraged in the communities, the relationships that you're in. You get discouraged. Uh, I don't turn on the news, but when you hear about things that are happening in the world, it's discouraging. And the devil wants us to be discouraged. That's why we have to be reminded of the truth. So in chapter 12, we're told that God is faithful to keep his promises, that through the work of Christ, he will bring about the full and final salvation of his people, despite the devil's opposition. So I want to give you some strategies to help you overcome the devil. But before we do that, I have to comment briefly. I don't have a lot of time. I want to comment briefly on the next chapter, chapter 13, because there's actually three beasts in this section. There's the great dragon. He's the head one. And then there's two other beasts that he talks about. And chapter 13 helps us understand why it's so difficult to give our undivided attention, loyalty, and obedience to our king. The dragon goes after us in indirect ways through two puppet shows, if you will, two of his minions, a beast from the sea and a beast from the earth. And we see in these beasts that they represent human kingdoms that have rejected the living God at the center of their lives. They're idols that we can worship. We can worship those beasts or we can worship the lamb. That's really the the, the heart of the issue. Who do you worship? Will you worship these false beasts? Or will you worship the Lamb on the throne? 
And in chapter 13, we get probably one of the most famous numbers. That's unfortunate because it's not the most important. But one of the most famous numbers in the entire book of Revelation, which is what? 666, the mark of the beast. The object of countless speculation, many theories, many different ideas about what this number means. And so throughout history, people have come up with different ideas about it. Using some ancient numberology, people said, well, six, number 666 refers to Nero Caesar. The letters of his name, when you, when you apply numbers to the Hebrew alphabet, I don't understand how all these things work. But does, does these people have the idea that it could be ref, a reference to a historical figure? Maybe. Using similar methods, people have taken this number to be associated with different rulers and different people throughout time, historically, the current day, and even speculating about the future, maybe. But I'm going to stick to my understanding of the numbers of the book of Revelation and give you an idea about what it looks to take this number 666 as a symbol, to take it symbolically as I take all the numbers in the book of Revelation. So hear me out. Seven is the number of heaven. We've talked about that. Seven's all over the book. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of completeness. It's the number of heaven. Well, six is the number of man. It's the number of the world. It's the number of imperfection. In other words, what's most important about the number six is that it's not seven. It's incomplete. It is short of that. And so what if, what if this mark of the beast is not a literal tattoo that you'd get on your arm or your forehead? What if it's not a microchip or a debit card or a credit card or Apple Pay or whatever other ideas people have about this somehow making, thinking that that's the mark of the beast? I I don't know. Maybe. But here's what I do know. I do know that it's not something that a Christian will accidentally do and therefore lose their salvation. I know that. And that's what a lot of people are freaking out about. What if I accidentally take the mark of the beast and then I'm out of the club? Guys, that goes against all the rest of what the Bible has said. Let's not lose our minds here in the hysteria. It is not something you are going to accidentally take if you are a sealed believer in Jesus Christ. Hear that. Beyond that, Okay, maybe it refers historically. Maybe it refers to something in our present day. Maybe it's something in the future. But what if the number 666 there really means not seven, not seven, not seven, which means worldly, imperfect, of man. Because see, you're either sealed one way or the other. You're either sealed, because this idea of sealing, we already talked about that through the whole section of the seals. You're sealed by the blood of the Lamb or you're not. And so if you're not sealed by the blood of the Lamb and therefore worship God as holy, 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 777, perfection, perfection, perfection. If you're not sealed that way, then you're marked by the world. 666, unholy, imperfect, unrighteous. It's a thought. What if the mark of the beast, what if, to be marked by the beast, what if that means to worship the beast instead of being marked by the one you worship? See, your life is marked. You are named by who you worship. And your mark, you will be marked, your life will be characterized by worship of Jesus or by worship of some kind of earthly creation or being or the devil himself and his minions. 
Your life will be marked 777 or 666. The three-part repetition of something means completely or utterly entirely. So we are either entirely marked as God's holy people, or we are entirely marked by our worship of the idolatrous beasts of this world. The issue is worship, and our hearts are prone to worship the beasts of power and economic security, false gods of wealth, of political power. This is a striking reminder to us, I think especially in our current climate. We must remember that our allegiance is always first and foremost to King Jesus. Amen? There are other things that are important in our lives and we have thoughts about and opinions about. But let's not let our allegiance to King Jesus be anywhere close to our allegiance to anything else in this world. To our own ideas, ideologies, even to our national identity, our political party. Our allegiance, first and foremost, is to King Jesus. We want to be careful that we don't worship the beasts of this world because that was a temptation for the people in that day. There were people who were bowing to Rome instead of bowing to King Jesus. So how do we overcome our worship of these false idols? How do we avoid giving in to the dragon and his minions, his beasts? Well, here's some strategies for overcoming. The first one is respond. We have to respond to the activity, the, the, the temptations of the devil. We have to respond to that. We overcome temptation, these lies, these distortion of truths by knowing the truth itself. That was how Jesus responded to the devil. Y'all know that, right? Jesus was tempted by the devil. And he responded by knowing the truth, by quoting the truth, by living into the truth. We have to respond. And secondly, we have to remember, we have to remember whose we are, that we are in Christ. Right? Chapter 12, verse 11, it says, They triumphed over him, who? The dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They remembered whose they were. Third strategy we have is that we can resist. James 4 says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? By drawing near to God. And if we draw near to God, he will come near to us. We resist the devil by drawing near to God, by drawing close in the Word and in prayer and in Christian fellowship, by renewing our mind, taking up the armor of God. We can resist. But sometimes resistance is not the best strategy. The best strategy is to run right? So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. When the house is on fire, you find a window or a door or any way of escape. To avoid the heat. So we can resist the devil. We can remember who we are, but sometimes our best strategy is simply to run. And then, of course, we know, unfortunately, that all of these strategies break down far too often. And then what do we do? Well, we repent. We repent. And he is faithful and just. 
He will cleanse us and He will forgive us. And we can confess our sins to a brother or sister, which will bring healing. There's a great book on this topic of spiritual warfare by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. It really helps you understand this in a very practical way. I want to commend that to you. Finally, I want to close this morning by reading the third verse of a well-known old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, by Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that word is Jesus. That's the word. He's the one that helps us to overcome as we fight the battle, knowing the victory is already won. It's good news, church. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the book of Revelation. We humbly submit there are so many details we cannot presume to understand them all. But God, help us to keep getting the main idea, the big picture. Help us to find encouragement in knowing that your story has already been written, that you have already won. And so God, help us each and every day in the midst of the battle and the struggle to find victory through your grace, through your power, and through your strength. God, so that we can live lives marked by your kingdom values and your way. God, so that more and more in our lives, this reality of your kingdom come and your will would be done, that it would become true of us as people, as families, as a church, and as a community. God, we want to see your kingdom come. And we long for the day that it will come in its fullness. So empower us, Father, to fight the battle faithfully, by your grace, for your glory. And all God's people said,